Welcome to Lab the Podcast. We are uncovering enchanted reality through conversations with people whose lives and work give us a glimpse of the life and beauty of the gospel. We're so glad you're joining us for the conversation. Lab the Podcast starts right now. My guest today is Dr. Hans Borsma. He is with Nashota House Theological Seminary in Wisconsin, formerly holding the J.I. Packer Chair of Theology at Regent College in Vancouver, Canada. And before coming to Regent College in 2005, Dr. Borsma uh, taught for six years at Trinity Western University in Langley, Langley, British Columbia. He served as a pastor. He's the author of several books, including Hospitality and the Cross, which won the 2005 Christianity Today Book Award in Theology and Ethics. Dr. Borsman is driven by a desire to retrieve the sacramental ontology of the pre-modern tradition. His book, Heavenly Participation, helps to just do that, or to do just that. And I loved the book, uh, deeply impactful to me, to our work, and I'm learning so much from Dr. Borsma. So I'm grateful to have the opportunity for us all to share some time together. Dr. Borsma, thank you for giving up time to be with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Zach. It's a joy to be with you. Well, you're, I wish we were with each other down here in uh, Tampa. It's warm. How are things in Wisconsin? Are, are hints of spring beginning to appear, or is it still pretty cold up there? Well, I wish I were in Florida, too. <laughs> uh, we we just got rid of our snow here um, the other day, um, but it's still it's still pretty cold, uh, close to freezing here, so uh, Florida's a better place. Yeah, for now. it's it's We've made the turn. It's full 85, 86, 87 degrees lately, so we'll we'll see. I would love to have you come down our way, so if we can make that happen sometime, we'll, we'll try to help be a part of that. I was introduced well, to you to your work through a mutual friend, Dr. Chris Armstrong. And he had written a great book. He's been a, a huge help to our work down here. And he encouraged me to read uh, Heavenly Participation. And I remember the day it arrived. I, I love books. I love getting a new book. And your book arrived. And I opened the package and was immediately struck by the cover art of the book. It, it's wonderful and immediately gives you this sense that something beautiful is ready to unfold, and that's exactly what happened. Uh, before we get into the book, I wonder if you can give us a bit of the backstory on your choice for the cover, because it was so beautiful, and it did such a great job of, as I say, inviting you into what you know is going to unfold to be a really beautiful conversation. Uh, give us a little context as to the the cover art and, and why you chose the image you did. Well, thank you for that, Jack. Um, I um, the, the book is, is entitled Heavenly Participation, so I was looking for a cover that would, would, would fit that, and uh, that would fit the link between heaven and earth. The entire book is, is about the link between heaven and earth, and um, the fact that I think in modernity we have we have secularized um, our, our way of looking and our way of treating everything around us. We've treated the things around us as, as just things, just DNA, just objects. And um, what I'm trying to do in the book is, is to try and um, show my readers that this world is actually imbued 
with spiritual significance, with spiritual meaning, um, with heavenly meaning, you could also say. Heaven and earth are not two separate compartments. They're closely linked. So I was looking for a cover that would, would indicate that. And um, I, I found it, I think, in um, the Italian painter Fra Angelico, a, uh, a 15th century uh, uh, painter, who, <clears throat> who in his, um, his painting, The Last Judgment, um, paints uh, both angels and, and human beings as hand in hand um, entering into the, into the heavenly realm. And together they're singing um, the Sanctus from, from Isaiah, uh, Holy, Holy, Holy. It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful painting, I think. And um, the idea that, that heavenly and earthly beings um, are entering into ever greater glory um, seems to me a picture of the close link between heaven and earth. And I'm sure that uh, Fra Angelico deliberately, deliberately uh, thought about this, this sacramental link between heaven and earth and, and depicted it in the Last Judgment. So it was, it was, a, was a beautiful picture. Um, it resonated with the main, main message of the book. And that's, that's why I picked it. Well, it's a beaut- thank you for the the backstory. When I it it did exactly what you were hoping it would do in imagery, and we say often, quoting Robert Frost, that that poetry is a way of remembering what it would impoverish us to forget, and that's the way this Im- mm-hmm. this image struck me is that that there's an impoverishment. And in looking through your work, before I even had stumbled into the work, but just looking through the cover art, I got a sense that that there's something that I've been that I'm experiencing an, an impoverishment. That there's something I've forgotten that that is known to me but unknown to me. And I immediately, you know, by the bottom of the preface, I came across these words. I'm going to just read a paragraph here to get us into the conversation, but. Dr. Borsma writes this, uh, quoting scripture, he says, Your word, O Lord, is eternal. It stands firm in the heavens. Your faithfulness continues through all generations. You established the earth, and it endures. And then, Dr. Borsma, you say this, Prior to the advent of modernity, few people would have been able to read these words of the psalm without thinking of Christ as the eternal word, who himself was the faithfulness of God and who himself established the earth. And you say it is this link between heaven and earth that allowed pre-modern Christians to see God's own truth, good, goodness, and beauty in the world around them. I think I feel that sense of loss and impoverishment that we don't see that way. We are the modern uh, Christians, as you reference, that have lost something, and it's it's left us with this feeling of disembodiment and disenchantment. Can you help us understand how did we get here to to the point where I can be holding your book as a Christian person and I can feel that sense that something's been lost. There's been a, a break in something that is actually linked or there's not a break in it. I just don't see the link. How did we get here? That's a very long story. Let me first say that I think you're, you're, you're right uh, about the, the idea that it's not only you, um, who, who experiences that loss. Um, but whenever I, I, I talk about these things to other people, um, there seems to be an echo that people say, yes, indeed, we, we're, having, we're having a difficult time um, 
recognizing, sensing, articulating um, the 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 truth that that the world thinks God's glory and that that God's glory is, is actually present in it. Um, and uh, the the reason for it, the, the the most obvious immediate reason for it is um, that we are so thoroughly at home in this world that we've made it our own and used it. I've started to use it for our own ends. Um, we 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 call this we call this often disenchantment or, or secularization, something like that. And um, at the end of the day, whatever historical factors we may want to talk about, and I'm happy to talk about those quickly. But at the end of the day, there's a spiritual problem here. Uh, at the end of the day, there is a, a selfishness on our part. St. Augustine makes, makes the, the distinction between using and enjoying things. He uses the Latin terms, obviously, fruity and fruity, using and, and enjoying. And, and he says, uh, Augustine says, God has given us the world um, to use so that we may enjoy God. The world around us is for using, not in abusing, in the abusing sense, but in the proper sense of using using it to a greater end. And the greater end is the enjoyment, truly enjoyment of God. And um, it, it seems to me that we've lost that distinction, and that's a spiritual problem, that's a question of, that's a matter of, 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 of sin. We've lost that distinction between uti and fui, and we've looked at the things around us as if they were there for their own sake, truly enjoyment. When you do that, when you confuse creator and creature in that way, um, you, you start to idolize the world around you, and you, you lose the significance of of this world being there for the sake of a greater end, an ultimate end, and that is the enjoyment of God. I love the way. Thank you for that, and just the the rootedness in in scriptures that are so familiar to us, especially in the Protestant tradition, Romans 1 is is immediately where I go when you say there's an idolatry, there's a selfishness, there's something in that creature-creator uh, framework that has, that there's a, a spiritual problem, and, and downstream of that we feel it, and there's an instinct in us that says that can't, it's not right, and we feel that sense of disenchantment but our eyes have not been trained to see in this way, even in the church, especially maybe in the Western church. And you're advocating for the, an, this idea of a sacramental ontology. And we hear those words, and those words may mean nothing to some of us. They may be triggering to some of us. They may be cause some suspicion. I wonder if you can just help us, like... Again, as we as we open ourselves up to this conversation, and we go, okay, yeah, I, I hear what Dr. Borsman is saying—that it's it's really this beautiful gift to to use the world in enjoyment uh, of God Himself, and that in these things that are penultimate carry us to the ultimate and allow us to relationally enjoy uh, reality itself. That there's something beautiful about that story, sacramental ontology. Uh, gives us language, but that's language again that's distant. Help us understand your use of the term. What does ontology even mean in a sacramental ontology? Yes, thank you for that, Zach. Um, the term ontology um, 
uh, comes from onkos, Greek term meaning being. So we're, we're talking about metaphysics, we're talking about ontology, that is to say, we're talking about how reality coheres, we're talking about the relationship between creator and creature. How do we understand the relationship between creator and creature? When you're talking about those kinds of questions, um, you're talking about about ontology or metaphysics. And um, in, in in modernity, we we often often kind of look down on on the notion that we would need even an ontology or a metaphysics. Um, we we've become suspicious of moderns, and especially as postmoderns, we've become suspicious. Of, of ontology, and um, the, the the result of that, the negative result of of, of that suspicion, is um, that we that we make the world our own in this autonomous sense that I described to you earlier. That we that we appropriate the world around us for our own selfish ends. And what I'm trying to argue in the book is that Instead, um, we should look at the world as a gift of being that might well not have been there, but that God, um, out of nothing, ex nihilo, gave um, so as to draw us to himself. That's the purpose of, of, of creation, to draw us back to himself. And um, the creative creature relationship on that understanding, and really it's been the understanding of much of, of, of Christian history, the creative creature relationship on that understanding is one where um, creation is a participation, the term I use often in the book, a participation um, in eternal realities, and in particular in the eternal logos or word of God. Um, you, could, you could use the analogy, and I often use the image when, when, when I talk about these things with others. You could use the image of, of a poem, the illustration of a poem. Um, when you have a poem, and, and you, you might not know all of the words, and so you look them up in a dictionary, and you might not quite understand how the syntax of, of, of the sentences, of the lines, of the, of the, of the verses work. And so you, you carefully read them and you try and put them together. Once you've got the syntax, you've got the word, meaning of the word, and so on, you've got the grammar down, as it were. You've got the DNA of the, of, of the poem down. You still don't quite know the poem because there is something in the poem that goes deeper than just the surface level. That goes deeper than just the words that you see on the page. There is a, a dimension to a poem that is that, that functions in a way, in such a way that every time you pick up that poem, at least if it's a good one, every time you pick up that poem, uh, it, it it shows you something new. It shows you something that you had not seen before, and that resonates hopefully with you. Um, so there is a depth dimension. There is a a, a inner coherence of which Christians would say, if you apply that now to the entire world and not just to a poem, which Christians would say this, the reason why creation functions like that is because it coheres 
it has its depth meaning in the eternal word of God. Um, the, the old tradition, um, the, the ancient tradition, including Augustine, uh, often talked about eternal ideas, uh, eternal logoi, eternal words, plural. And, and those eternal ideas, those eternal principles, um, are in the mind of God. They are in the word of God. Imagine they wouldn't be there at, at St. Augustine. This is not in my book. I'm just sort of <laughs> talking about some background here. But imagine imagine the world did not have its grounding in the eternal word of God. Then God would would make up things on the spot whenever whenever something new came about. Augustine says, that cannot be because God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, he surely knows beforehand what he's going to do. And and if he knows beforehand what he's going to do, that means he must have eternal ideas of those things that he's going to make. Mm-hmm. There's a link, therefore, between this world, the world that we that we access with the senses, and the eternal ideas or eternal forms that God has from eternity in the eternal word of God. Even as you describe that, I'm I'm experiencing a sense of rest in 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 my embodied self as a modern person, a postmodern person, with all of the dislocation and and despair and confusion. And I hear you tell that story of of kind of reality itself, us being nested within this eternal word and i hear colossians 1 and all things being held together and there's a center point in the incarnational person of christ the word and and then as i draw from your book it's so beautiful and i i literally find myself resting in that and yet i go man i grew up in the protestant church and it seems like we had a loss of imagination or there was somehow that story, we lost that story, and that story was that we started to particularize out parts of it, um, but my, I, I didn't know, I knew words from the poem, and my focus was the poem, and my intuition was trained to see the words, but not the poem. Is that, uh, is that endemic of, of Western Christianity, just Protestantism? It seems like the Catholic imagination might have more room for that type of, of view, um, is it is was it really the, the the Protestant tradition kind of trended away from seeing things in the whole like that 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 have led us to especially this kind of experience that I'm having right now even. Yeah, thank you for that. Let me first say that that um, your, your description, the way that that you talk about um, looking at the poem but not getting the poem, is exactly what I mean. And, and let me underscore the, the the element of rest that you mentioned, resting in Christ, um, resting in, in the one who holds the entire world together, as the scriptures say. Um, what, what we're doing here is not abstract metaphysics, abstract ontology. Um, what we're hopefully doing is, is, is offering a theological, that is to say a biblical, picture of, of, of how reality functions that coheres with the scriptures. Um, and, and as I've started to, to look more to the tradition and turn to the earlier tradition, uh, patristic and medieval tradition, 
uh, it strikes me how eminently biblical, sorry, how, how eminently biblical uh, these theologians were, and how they struggled with the same things that you and I struggle with: the anxiety, the fragmentation, the loneliness, the frenetic pace of of of, of things, um, the lack of attention, the inability to attend to things. They struggled with those very same things. And they write about them and try to counter them with spiritual exercises um, in ways that were that, that I think are, are phenomenally helpful. Um, so that's just sorry, that's that's not to your question, um, but I wanted to, to just underscore some of the things that you mentioned. As to your question itself about whether whether the cause of some of these problems that we experience <clears throat> lies with the Reformation and with Protestantism in particular. Um, or with Western Christianity, or, or where. Um, I trace some of that in, in the book that we're discussing. Um, and um, I, I'm saying basically two things, I suppose. One is, yes, in some sense, Protestantism um, has, has this problem uniquely, um, in that um, Protestants are often suspicious of metaphysics, of ontology, um, and, and Protestants are often wary of even the notion of, of sacramentality because they're afraid it will take us back to some sort of magical, uh, superstitious world of Roman Catholicism. Um, so there is a sense in which, yes, Protestants have, have this problem uniquely, and I, I point to that in the book as I trace things historically. Um, at the same time, that's the second second point I should mention. Um, the, the the metaphysical difficulties and problems that led to these things historically predate the Reformation. Mm-hmm. Um, they occurred, at least to my mindset, particularly uh, in, in the 14th and 15th centuries, and um, and and some aspects of it one can trace actually. Uh, even to, to even, even earlier period, um, and and as a result, I think um, you see some of these issues not only in Protestantism but also in Catholicism. Um, the, the problem of secularism isn't one that that's just affecting evangelicals or just affecting Protestants. Um, Catholics are just as beset with those problems as as are Protestants. Um, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Dutch Canadian, um, grew up in Holland and live in Canada. <laughs> and, um, the, the, the secularism, um, affected Quebec and Canada hugely in the 1960s. Overnight, it became pretty much secular in the 60s and 70s. Same in the Netherlands. Um, the north of the Netherlands is Protestant, the south is, is, is Catholic. And in the 60s and 70s, both the north and the south of the Netherlands went radically secular. So these problems are not unique to any denomination, any particular group. It's a Western modern problem, and we're all heirs of modernity. Yes, we can fight about who's at fault, and historically, yes, it's more Protestantism that that is at fault than than Catholicism. But we have a a common problem that, that, that is modernity's problem. 
I love, thank you for that and the way that you're linking the two and that it's a shared, it's something that we share together in the Christian tradition. And and I think we're feeling that. Charles Taylor's work, uh, A Secular Age, where he, he describes this this malaise that comes with the secularism and, and the fragmentation, the lack of attention, some of the things that you point out, th- that's our lived experience. And I think that's what so many young people today are kind of gasping for something even within their traditions that says I there's there's something a deeper meaning there's that sense of rest of of being held within a story that is the poem that's the longing at least as I read the landscape here in in the young west uh, in these younger generations going there's something and my intuition is 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 actually pointing me toward it and as as Taylor was saying the secularism he feels like we were moving from secular to post secular maybe secular 1 2 and 3 in his language has now that ceiling is cracking and i think that's what's so exciting about your book is we haven't had language at least this art my generation and below hasn't had language to say, can we trust that intuition and instinct that we have, that yearning to see through something? And to and we've been almost conditioned to see things as separate. Heaven and earth have been separated, and there there's a great chasm between the two, and we feel very alone over here, hopeful that there's something over there uh, that might... And and even just kind of reimagining that that it, that the world is not that fragmented, and that reality itself is not that fragmented, even that is uh, is a, like a fresh wind for a generation that feels very alone and isolated in that under that frame of secularism. But I think it's crumbling, and you say. Uh, that you've become convinced is your language. You say you've been become convinced that the church's well-being depends on the recovery of a sacramental tapestry, and I am uh, that sacramental ontology, that view of reality itself. Uh, what do you mean when you say that the church's well-being depends on it? Um, it it's true, certainly that that. Many young people long um, for for a way to counter their anxiety, their sense of isolation, um, and are are looking for for peace, are looking for transcendence, um, which is why I think a lot of evangelicals, and I've I've, I've taught mostly through my career in evangelical settings. Um, where many evangelicals are turning to the tradition, mm-hmm. um, they're they're often young people uh, are often interested in orthodoxy, are often interested in Catholicism, and and the reason for it, I think, is their sense of being uprooted, mm-hmm. um, the malaise that you, that you talked about, and they're so they're they're looking elsewhere, um, and um, the 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 church. Um, and, and that counts particularly for, for evangelical and other Protestant traditions, I think. Um, the church needs to have an ear for that, um, for the sake of those young people, but ultimately for the sake of the well-being of the church. Um, now, this, this, there's all sorts of, sorts of specifics that we can talk about here, but the underlying reason, I think, why this matters for the church is that 
um, if we don't give heed to that sense of, 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 that, of that longing that many of the young people have, um, we run the danger of, of shutting that desire down and of, of imprisoning, as it were, imprisoning um, our congregations in a strictly secular realm that shut off from the sacramental truth, the sacramental reality um, to which God calls us. Um, and my hunch is, um, because there's a search for spirituality, not only among Christians, but also among others, um, that if we are not careful, um, we, we are, we are closing, we're not just imprisoning our people, but we're closing down our churches. Um, already in, in America, as well as in Canada, uh, increasingly also in America, um, the, the Christian faith and Christian churches are emptying out. Um, and um, there may be all sorts of reasons for that, for that spiritual reasons, um, sociological reasons, and so on. Um, but if we don't keep in mind the purpose of the church, and that is to make us into the body of Christ and to reunite us with the one who has made us. If instead we simply see it as a place where we can get morally refueled or something like that, um, we, we are going to continue this trend. The only way in which America and American churches and North American churches in general can... can uh, connect with the desire that God has instilled in all of his human creatures um, is by, by holding up to people the supernatural end, the aim of seeing God face to face clearly and unapologetically. Um, now that, that's going to be that, that's going to be challenged. That, that's, uh, you know, often, and even among, among the younger generation, yes, People are open to tradition, to more more uh, liturgical church services, and so on. And I applaud those things. Um, but but if we truly see the entire world as sacramental in character and imbued with the presence of God, um, that that places demands on us because that means that our ultimate home is not where we are, and that is a real challenge, I think, for many contemporary evangelicals including the younger evangelicals, who, who often are wary and nervous of being called to something something more demanding, um, something um, that, that places disciplinary demands upon them. Um, but a sacramental vision that of God himself as the end, as a purpose, places demands upon us. And I think the church should should not be afraid to place demands upon us, because only in that way um, does the church have the ability to lead us into, into God's territory. Every Everybody who's listening, I want you to go back and just start with what Dr. Borsman just said and, and re-listen to that. Thank you for that and for unapologetically pointing beyond uh, even the instinct or the intuition to, to return back to 
some some things that maybe we've forgotten that it's impoverished us to forget, but that the point is not any of the things. The point is a new way of seeing that that is is relational. It's it's a it's a an, a whole new way of being that that punches through that uh, ceiling of secularism into reality itself, and it's a relational reality. And Dr. Borsma, that brilliantly said. Thank you. And there's great hope in us, I, I think, in me, just as I, I'm like cheering you on as you're speaking, and I have great hope for it, but then I have, you know, I realize the weight. I remember reading Francis Schaeffer's words that, that materialism, he was using the language of materialism, but he said it's like a fog, he said it's a fog that creeps in as if through an open window of the church. And I think that there's that it is something that if we're listening, if you're a pastor, if you're you're a part of helping to lead a church here in the West, pay attention and listen because there is a fog that creeps in that is part of a deeper thing that is leading to the irrelevancy of of church. And unless we recover a, a participatory ontology, uh, we won't understand what it is to be the church and to gather in in the ground underneath us is eroded. There's no meaningful backdrop to to why. Uh, we would participate. So go back, listen to what Dr. Borsma just said, and and trace those thoughts. Deeply, deeply important. And I I want to be careful of your time. I know you have so many different things going on, and I so appreciate that you took this time for us. You you pinpoint a particular um, evidence or expression or symptom of this in the world, and you highlight Pope Francis's concern that, that we've cultivated and, and this view has, or this loss has contributed to our current throwaway culture. And I love, I love that addition because we feel the malaise, we feel the disenchantment, we feel the frustration, we feel that longing for something, uh, but we don't see the meaning that all that, any young person you talk to today is going to say, yes, that's my lived experience. And right there with it is this throwaway culture that even our bodies, we have, have adopted that sense of throwaway culture. Can you help us with some language around what, what Pope Francis was saying about that throwaway culture and how this loss has contributed to the cultivation of that? I, I would say it, it is particularly our bodies um, that suffer as a result. Um, you could you could perhaps put it this way: um, we are we tend to we tend to think of the earlier tradition, especially the Middle Ages, um, as as looking down on on the world around us. They were otherworldly in character. They called us away from this world to something else. They were dualistic in character, and so and so. Embodied things, material things, this worldly things, um, were, were viewed as negative. That's what we often think. Um, in my understanding, um, we've got it exactly backward. It is we who do not know what to do with embodied things. It's we who do not know what to do with, with the world around us. It is we who don't understand what it means to be created. Um, and the reason for that is once you separate heaven and earth, once you desacramentalize the world, um, you're going to look at this worldly thing, the, the, the world of the senses, including the human body, as just an object, just a thing. We're just, very dangerous word, <laughs> mm. just the body. 
just an object, just just a bunch of atoms floating around. Um, because there's no 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 deeper coherence of those things in the eternal word of God. When you isolate um, objects, this worldly object, in that way, and when you when you limit them to just their material content, as it were, um, you you tend to treat them as things that you can manipulate and use for your own private ends. And that's what we, exactly what we've learned to do. Uh, that's what we've learned to, to do with the, with the world around us. That's what we've learned to do with, with um, unborn life. That's what we have learned to do with, with um, the relationship between uh, men and women. In every way, we've, we've learned to use things because we want to fully enjoy them. But idolizing them, we've ended up actually with a throwaway culture. But idolizing things as standing completely on their own two feet, um, we've, we've, we've grabbed them, as it were, in order to possess them. And by, by possessing them, uh, we treat them as something that we can look at, grab, and then toss out. Um, in every way, Therefore, uh, Pope Francis is right, I think, when he describes uh, the modern world in principle as a, as a throwaway world. Now, it's not as though we treat everything always in that fashion, thankfully, but that's because we, we, we sometimes have, have a memory of something more significant, of, 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 of a spiritual depth to things. And when we recognize that spiritual depth, um, when we recognize that participatory link that you mentioned, um, then we tend to treat um, this worldly thing better. We tend to treat things with a view to the end for which they are made. Um, so, so the body and 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 the quote unquote material things that we that we see around us, um, they they receive significance for us only when we recognize the significance that they truly have already. Um, because of their anchoring in the eternal word. Only then do they have significance. As I listen, I just, so many thoughts are, are stacking up in my mind of how this loss leads to the treatment of my body, my my sexual life, the way that I treat my neighbor, my things, the way I approach my work, ecology, and I love how you you say that it it's kind of a, it's it's not true to say that we don't have some sort of a metaphysic. Everybody has a metaphysic. Everybody has an ontological perspective, and we can't avoid that. And by not kind of rowing in this direction and and trying to relearn to recover a sacramental or participatory ontology we're by default participating in a different ontological view. There, there, it's not that we're just suspending all of them and saying, well, that's a lot of work. I don't want to have that conversation. It, it, that literally it does lead to very things. I've been reading so many things just about our sexual lives and, and the hookup culture and the possibility that I can participate, my body can participate in something, but that the real me or the meaning of me is separate from that participation of something. 
and just the tragedy. And so there's so much pain that we then try to suspend and say, well, that wasn't painful. That existential pain that I feel, that's not real. There, that isn't something. It's just my body. I love that you said just and how dangerous and powerful that word of just can be in our lived experience. So I'm with you all who are listening. Like I've lived the just life and detached, divorced from this sacramental ontology, this participatory ontology. And I, I know what you're feeling. And I, that, that's why there is a grieving. There is a deep sense of loss. And, and I want to leave us with hope that, that the invitation is back to, and that's why the, we say the vision is Jesus, the enchanted reality, the beautiful reality is that he is there and he is the center and there is a place of rest and there's hope for all of us and there's no barrier, there's no uh, there's no working ourselves back into it. It is the reality that we're invited to participate in. And what a joy that is. I mean, that's that should set off just, that's the good news, right? And you talk about that right at the end of the book, and I'll, I guess I'll turn us toward the close with this. You, you talk about uh, the need for evangelicals and Catholics uh, to, to, who discern the primary need of our time as, and I love this, you say, a celebration of our heavenly participation in the in the Word of God, T- help us understand why you started with the word a celebration. That idea of festival, even that, comes and flows from this ontological perspective, and w- I, there's there's power in that word and your choice of a primary need of our time being a celebration of this heavenly participation. Why include the word celebration? I suppose the best way to talk about that is by going back to the book's cover, um, which which uh, has a dance, uh, a dance of, of, of angels and men um, entering into the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, when when we when we dance, we're having a celebration, and God calls us to celebration ultimately. Um, um, after after the book Heavenly Participation, I, I wrote a book on the beatific vision on seeing God face to face in the hereafter. And and um, when when I was working on that, I came to realize that many theologians in the history of the Church, when they talk about the beatific vision, um, they 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 talk both about understanding and about enjoying. There's two elements often, and people talk about the relationship between those in different ways, but there's both a, 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 a seeing the way we often say, well, oh, now I see, now I understand. So there's a sense of understanding the intellectual side of things. And then then there is the emotional side of things, the enjoyment, fruitio, enjoyment, the enjoyment side of things. Um, and, and, and the two are obviously linked when you, when you, when you see God you cannot but enjoy it. Like the Westminster, um, Westminster uh, Catechism so famously says, right, that our aim is to to enjoy God forever. So, so the the um, the celebration um, that we're looking forward to cannot but cannot but cast its 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 light already into this world here and now. If we if we have this hope within us, as, as the letter to the Hebrews says, if we have this hope within us, um, 
than 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 certainly we have an author and finisher um, whom we can trust to complete um, the hope that we have within us um, for all eternity. Um, and so so already um, we experience that we're in the presence of God. In the book I explain, already we are, as the Apostle Paul puts it, both in Ephesians and in Colossians, already we are in the heavenly places. Um, of course, then it will be greater. The celebration will be much grander. But, but the beginning of that celebration is already here today because it's more true that we are in the presence of God in heaven today than it is true that we are here on earth. All I can say to that is is amen and amen, and you're getting a, a standing ovation from all of us here in the room and listening. The sun is risen indeed. Here we are just on the threshold of the Easter uh, celebration, and the sun literally has risen indeed, and that light floods and, and peaks over and spills into all of the world. And as Lewis would say, our reality is dancing, it's tingling, it is a festival because of that reality. And you can't help but dance and find yourself participating in something that you're not manufacturing. It is, it, the sun is risen, and that light is falling uh, and casting its beautiful glow, washing, and we see everything because of it. And so... Dr. Borsma, we, uh, I'm so grateful. Uh, I could talk to you for years, and if we had the opportunity and every chance we get, we're going to celebrate your work and hold out the book. It's so important, and the language you've given us, the, the rooted and firm foundation to, to, to believe that this is, these things are not just beautiful words and beautiful poetry. It's rooted in the bedrock of Scripture, and it is the poem of reality that gift to have uh, imagination and reason both wedded together uh, so that we can participate with joy and give ourselves to it fully. That's a tremendous gift to all of us. And so thank you so much for your work. And I hope we have many, many more opportunities to have conversations, but you've, you've given us a tremendous gift and we're in your debt. Thanks for joining us for the conversation. Remember to like and subscribe to Lab the Podcast and visit VUVIVO.com to help us uncover enchanted reality. We'll see you next time.